My, a few weeks ago, my parents were up for a visit, and I worked on a few projects with my dad, and one of those projects was cutting down an apple tree in our backyard. But I want you to know that this was not your quaint little apple tree that's well-managed, well-pruned. One of those trees you go to Smolok and you pick apples off of in October. No, this was a towering, 50-foot, overgrown gnarly, dying apple tree. This apple tree made about seven crappy apples per year. (laughs) And rather than showering apples all over my yard, it showered its dead branches all over my yard, and so it was time. It was time. This apple tree was also situated in a tight little corner of my backyard, of course, with neighbor fences close by. And so as we were getting into this project, I'm like, man, what did I get myself into? And so my, my dad, you know, he's, he's been around the block with these things quite a bit. And so he's got a reasonably high level of confidence with this sort of thing. And I had a reasonably high level of confidence with this kind of thing until we started the project. Because, you know, in this tight little space, Where are all these limbs going to fall? What's going to happen? What am I going to break? What am I going to have to pay for? All the thoughts running through my head. My dad is 73. He's got some shoulder issues. And so I said, Dad, you know what? I'll be on the ladder. And But to be honest with you, I don't love heights. I don't love heights. And then when you add holding a chainsaw over your head, making cuts, it's getting dicey quickly. And so what ended up happening under these stressful conditions that at least I felt, he was cool as a cucumber, is I became hyper-aware of my dad. Where he was, what he could do in any given moment, aware of his, his instincts about the situation and what we should do. And so... As things went on, more and more hyperware. my dad, it's like, Dad, can you come stand on the ladder, please? You know, Dad, you have that rope tied off well? Dad, can you, can you see me from where I'm signaling you? you? Can you see me, Dad? It's hyper-aware. By the miracle of God, every limb fell where it was supposed to. By some miracle... But the only way that I was going to get through that stressful ordeal was with an assurance of my dad's presence, of his proximity to me, and of his partnership in that project. Well, Exodus has been telling us the story of a God who enters into a a special relationship, a, a special project even, with the people of Israel And this whole relationship is based on the promise of his presence, his proximity, and his partnership with them as they live out this calling to be a light to the nations. But as we're going to see in our text this morning, this this very relationship and these very promises become threatened. As we look at this text, we see that the people rebel against God in such an egregious way that we're left to think, I'm not sure this is going to continue. I'm not sure God's going to carry on with this people. 
Maybe God's just going to scrap the whole thing and start over. And so like my tree-cutting ordeal with my dad being unimaginable, impossible on my own, without him, the question is how can these people carry on in their mission without their God with them? Well, the special relationship that God and Israel have that's established here is a covenant relationship, and we'll talk about more what that means in a moment. But this morning, I want to look at three aspects of this covenant drama that unfolds in these chapters of Exodus as we wrap up this series. And the first of these is that the covenant is confirmed. The covenant has to start somewhere. The covenant gets kicked off as God and the people come together on the terms that God puts forward. And so we'll see how it's confirmed. But second, with this whole golden calf episode, which we'll explore from chapter 32, is the covenant is broken quickly. This covenant, the terms of this covenant between God and his people are broken. But then last and thirdly, we'll see how this covenant is restored because God is gracious to them. And as we look at this drama and as we look at this covenant, we'll learn much about ourselves in many ways, our own hearts. But even more importantly, we learn about God and who he is, his heart, his nature, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we see this, My prayer is that it leads us to know him more fully and to worship him more fully. As we turn to this word from Exodus, let us first pray. God, we thank you for this word. And of course, as we see this stunning story, we thank you for your show of faithfulness to your people, to a rebellious people. And Lord, in our own way, we're rebellious. But God, you have invited us near through Christ. And so, God, may we appreciate that more fully this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do by your Spirit, that this word might well up to eternal life in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, so first, what is covenant? This is key for understanding what we're going to unpack this morning. And Covenant was a familiar form that established a legal binding relationship between two parties. This was common in the ancient world, and of course the Bible comes from the ancient world, and so this would have been familiar to God's people. So in that time, you had kings who would conquer new territories, and they would enter into covenant with their new subjects. The covenant would go, you obey me, I protect you. That's how this is going to work out. In our own day and age, a a good example for us to look to is the covenant of marriage, where two people come together before God, before witnesses, exchange vows of their covenant, and enter into covenant relationship together. And so this was God's chosen way of revealing his nature, revealing who he is and entering into relationship with an unholy people. This is the means that God shows. So first, as we said, this covenant is confirmed. This covenant has to start. 
And we're just going to have a brief look at the covenant confirmed, but it's important to set up for where we're headed. So what happens is a few months after the people have been delivered out of Egypt, miraculously, God sends plagues on Egypt. He delivers them. He parts the seas. He wipes out Pharaoh and his armies. A few months after that, God summons his people to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And the people gather there, and then he summons Moses, their leader, to the top of the mountain where he's going to receive God's law and God's covenant. And so as we saw a couple weeks ago, Moses receives those Ten Commandments. And then he also receives kind of an expansion of all of those same commandments in the rest of the law that he gets on the mountain. And then what we see in chapter 19 and then again in chapter 24 is that the people confirm their commitment to this covenant. Exodus 24, verse 7 says, Then he, speaking of Moses, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. So God has come to them. He has said, Listen, if you follow these commandments, if you follow my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a holy nation, a light to the nations. And the people in this moment, chapter 24, they say, we are in. Let's do this. We will obey. So the covenant is confirmed. God has come to them. They have entered into this committed, unique, special relationship with him where they can know him and know his ways and be a light to the world. But then, of course, as we see, it all takes a tragic turn. Covenant's broken. As we see in chapter 32, it's not long before this covenant is broken. Moses is back on the mountain. He's getting more of this download of God's revelation and law and more instruction. And the people, they're getting a little antsy down there at the bottom of the mountain. They're getting a little insecure. Here they are out in the wilderness. God is appearing to them in power. But where's our leader? We don't know where Moses went. Has God hung us out to dry? And so insecure, fearful, doubting, they take matters into their own hands. And what do they do? They demand an image. They say to Aaron, the priest, make us an image. Make us an idol. Make us a golden calf that we can worship and offer sacrifice. And it's interesting because these people, all that they really knew coming out of Egypt was Egypt's false gods, Egypt's false idols. They had just been inhabiting that place for 400 years. And so what they do is they just resort back to that, these false gods of that land they had been delivered from. And they fashion this idol similar to what they had come from. And right there we pick up in the text that was read for us earlier, verse 7 of chapter 32, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought about of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Maybe you felt this way in your life, but I know for me as a parent, the ones that sting a little bit extra are when you explicitly talk to your kids about not doing something, and then they turn right around and they go do that thing. Maybe you've experienced that as a parent or as a good friend or as a mentor to somebody who 
you see make poor choices. Now, of course, with my seven and my four-year-old, we're not talking about grand theft auto or murder or any big ones, but even their little kid rebellion stings a little bit. Well, here the people of Israel have just done just that. They break the first commandment. They break the second commandment. The first is, God says, don't have any other gods. There's no other gods but me, so don't have any other gods before me. Don't worship anything else but me, the Lord. And then they break break the second commandment, not to make any idols, not to make anything out of wood or metal or stone to represent God. A scholar named David Lamb says this about this golden calf incident. He says, Yahweh did get mad at Israel in Exodus 32, but only after he had freed them from slavery, rescued them from the Egyptian army, fed them with manna, provided water for them, met with them at Sinai. He was mad because they committed adultery on the honeymoon. So right at the beginning, right at the very beginning of this covenant relationship, God's people are unfaithful. In our own lives, we're we're prone to get ourselves into trouble with these same sorts of things, too, if we're honest. Like those anxious Israelites, we're we're prone to look for significance and fulfillment and meaning for all sorts of things outside of Christ. We might say, you know, I'm, I'm glad I have Christ, but I really need this, that, or the other to feel fulfilled and satisfied and meaningful and purposeful. I need the right degree, I need the right promotion, I need the right social circle, I need the right athletic achievement, I need the perfect home, I need the perfect family. We make, as Tim Keller, who just passed away a couple of days ago, as Tim Keller, the pastor and theologian, said, we make what are good things, ultimate things, rather than submitting these things to Christ. And so we, too, have to search our hearts, even today. But we're also liable of making a God of our own making, as we see them do. Sort of a casual God, a God that fits our preferences, our expectations. A God who behaves the way we want him to. You know, God doesn't really care about my sinful behavior, my sinful choices. You know, all all paths just sort of lead to God. It's all good. Or, you know, the, 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 the Bible, it's, it's a good book, but it's not an authority over my life today. Or even worse, if I just try hard enough, God will bless me. All of these attitudes, false gods. You see, to have a proper view of God, we take his word, which we're looking at today, and which we have a lifetime to study and reflect on, we take it seriously how God has revealed himself, however much it may challenge us. But then in verse 10, we see the text makes clear how God feels about their rebellion. God says to Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. So God is angered. They've broken the terms of the covenant. God is thinking, I just delivered you from Egypt. 
I just sent plagues on that place to judge all those false gods of Egypt, and now you want to go dance and have debauchery around a piece of metal, around one of these gods that was part of that idolatrous place that I brought you out of? He says, you know, maybe I'll just pull the plug on this whole thing. I'll just pull out of this whole arrangement. I'll pull my protection, my presence, my partnership with this people, and then I'll just start over with Moses. That's what God's saying. But as it turns out, God doesn't bring the destruction that he threatens. He does punish them. We see that at the end of chapter 32. But because of Moses' intercession, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself, he doesn't destroy them like he threatens. He relents. But not only that, God moves to restore this broken covenant with this rebellious people. So finally, is the covenant restored? As the narrative moves along, we see Moses, he's, he, he is the mediator of this covenant. Now he is having to intercede for this people. He's finding himself between God and the people, and he's, he's pleading with God. He says, God, don't destroy this people. Remember your promises to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, he says don't let our former oppressors, Egypt, look at us on, out here in the desert when you destroy us, that they may gloat over us, that you weren't actually for us and with us. Don't let that happen, God. Because of Moses' intercession, God relents from what he has threatened. And that in and of itself is fascinating. We can't unpack that fully today. But in relenting, in, in, in choosing a more moderate punishment, if you will, for them. He's, God is not compromising on who he is. He is not compromising on his justice, his holiness. He sends punishment, and he leans into mercy, which is fundamentally part of who he is too. What happens is God restores the promise of his presence with them. Because in chapter 33, God says, you know what, people? Go on. You know, go on into the promised land. I'll even send an angel ahead of you, but I won't go with you. I'm going to destroy you if I go with you. But Moses isn't satisfied with that. Chapter 33, verses 15 through 17. Then Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And then the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses knew that the presence of God was critical. How was the world going to know that God was with and for them if they didn't have his presence? So he promises his presence again, but then we see this beautiful covenant restoration. Chapter 34, verse 4, Moses is commanded to take new tablets. The first had been inscribed with the very finger of God as God writes the law on them, but God says to Moses, take new tablets and inscribe my law on them again. Let's have a do-over, God says. And then God shows himself to Moses in a very special way. 
And it's described in these, a very physical form. And it's not as though Moses saw God physically, as if God had a physical form, but the point is he has this profound experience of his goodness and his presence and his favor. And in what we're about to read, God describes himself exactly as he wants to be known. So for you on a, on a job resume that you send around, or for you on your professional bio on some website, you present yourself how you want to be known. This is how God wants to be known for all generations. Verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's unpack that for a little bit and start with the tough part of that. At the end there, what God is doing, and he's, he's affirming his holiness He's affirming his justice. He's saying, you know, sin and transgression against this covenant, it matters. It matters. This text is not saying that God will punish innocent people for the sins of their fathers and their grandfathers. It is saying with each successive generation that continues in sin, the same sins, there's consequence. In other words, lest the people think that God punished that generation at the golden calf and kind of got it out of his system, God says, no, it still matters. Faithfulness to my covenant. But for a thousand generations, in other words, forever, God says he's full of mercy, gracious, slow to anger, Forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. That's how God wants to be known. So in this span of the life of God's people, we see a covenant confirmed. We see a covenant quickly broken. And then we see a covenant restored. In spite of their sin, their rebellion, their idolatry, God restores this promise of his presence with them. His proximity with them. Not only that, his partnership with them as they carry on their mission. Well, this, this original covenant, this Mosaic covenant that we've looked at in Exodus over the last several weeks, it's, it, it's really remarkable. It shows us so much of, of, who, of who we are and who God is, his nature and his heart. But I want you to know this morning that Scripture says there's a better covenant. Scripture says there's an even better covenant. Scripture points us to the new covenant in Christ, Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8 says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. Referring back to the Mosaic. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And so that first covenant that we just looked at, it promised a whole lot. It promised presence and proximity and partnership with them if they would keep his commandments. But this new covenant that you and I have received, 
is an even better deal. In that same passage of Hebrews, he, the writer quotes Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament. And he quotes him saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But listen to this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant for us. That's the promise for us. The covenant that in Exodus is confirmed and broken and restored, the deal there was that God's law and his presence would be with them, but it would always be external to them. His presence would dwell with them in a very special way at the tabernacle. And he gave gave them this amazing law, which is on tablets and scrolls, but it was always outside of them. But in the new covenant, the promise is this law and this presence enters into us, with us, all the time. It dwells inside of you with a law written on your heart and with the Spirit of God alive in you. And so we get the better deal because of Christ. And we don't enter into this covenant by saying like the Israelites, yes, I will obey. We enter in by saying, yes, I will believe in the one who is the only one who could obey, Jesus Christ. And as we believe, as we enter into this covenant by faith, we learn to love God's law, which is in you, comes alive in you by his spirit. And as we enter in, we come to know his presence, his proximity, and his partnership with us, always. Let it be so in our lives. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these promises. We thank you for this better covenant that you have invited us into through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. God, for some in the room, they have not entered into this covenant. For those with a heart, a heart, Lord, I pray that faith would arise to receive your gift of forgiveness this morning. And for others of us, Lord, I pray you would soften our hearts always that we might love your law, be filled with your spirit, empowered by your spirit to live a a life pleasing to you that blesses our world. So, Lord, may it be by the power of your spirit in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.